You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimization, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. Along with its associated websites, the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me, as usual, is co-host David Leach from ITK Services. David, I trust you are well in what is um, turning out to be quite an interesting week, once again, in the world of Yes, Giles. Uh, I hope all our listeners are well and, um, you know, if they're like me trying to keep up with everything that's going on, it's pretty much time. Uh, I can't say have a Valium and a good lie down, can I? Or a Bex and a good lie down. But uh, uh, you're certainly going to be very busy trying to keep up with all the news at the moment. It's enough to turn your heads. Look, we've got an uh, interesting interview coming up later, but I thought we might just first just go tick off some of the news events as they've occurred this week. And I know there's a couple of things that you want to talk about um, in terms of wind turbines, renewable shares and things like that. But look, um, this week the climate bill got through the Senate a day after the uh, midwinter ball in Canberra, which seemed to feature a lot of Greens people wearing dresses emblazoned with no gas and no coal. Um, the government is telling us that the climate bill is more than symbolic. It's clearly not adequate, but is it more than symbolic, David? Um, I, I think we've, uh, yes, as we've discussed before, Giles, I think it, uh, it is because it, it means that uh, it's like having the um, uh, uh, um, a climate objective written into the uh, national electricity law. It basically means that these things start to get taken account of in every big decision. And I think uh, today's announcement of uh, CO2 uh, being uh, a pollution gas, <laughs> Uh, anyone remember the carbon pollution reduction scheme? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> Who would have thought? Exactly, 10 years later. But yes, yeah, so that's the Environmental Protection Authority in New South Wales, which has announced that it wants to um, treat CO2 as a pollutant, which is going to be very significant because they're the people who approve all sorts of different projects. In fact, just about anything, any project or scale. Indeed. I was, uh, I'm sure we could find a lot of questions to ask about that, and I'm sure it will be a very slow process of introducing it because you know, basically every big project that's ever introduced has to have an environmental impact statement. And if you're carbon pollution, uh, if you're a coal one and you've got to talk about carbon pollution, then I don't know. And this will get us into a discussion, which we'll have to have another day, Giles, about scope one, two and three emissions. But of course, I mean, in the end, if, even if you uh, don't have any emissions, for instance, in extracting your coal, but any scope one or two, but you cause a lot of global warming because of scope three emissions, is that something a New South Wales EIA should consider? But that's for a future, uh, a future time, isn't it really? Because there's so much else to discuss. Well, it is, but I guess what it just comes back to is that basically we have this climate law and that's good, it is inadequate, it's 43%, but at least it's something, but most of the action is being felt elsewhere. So you've talked about the environmental um, um, and emissions being put into the National Energy Ob Objective. We've just discussed the EPA um, declaring climate um, sort of CO2 to be a pollutant. We've kind of seen this in Queensland now. We saw this story in The Australian this week that um, maybe Queensland 
is going to lift its 50% renewable energy target, something it's done actually bugger all to actually meet. But basically, all it's doing is just reacting to things that are going on around it and probably despite it, because there's just so much interest from the corporate sector. You know, the Andrew Forrest of the world, the Vidrollers, the Axionas, the uh, Rio Tintos, they all want renewable energy and all bloody well going to build it, um, whether the government likes it or not almost. Look, uh, the, the minister in Queensland, Mick de Brenny, uh, he showed that uh, I think he's supportive, but he's got a difficult situation where the state owns all the coal-owned generation uh, and the ETU has a big influence on everything that happens up there. Um, and, and we've been waiting for a statement from him that he promised last year, and I think I've been waiting since about March for that statement, <laughs> and I'm still waiting, which shows how difficult it is. It takes a while to build sure a plan, David. It takes a while to build a plan. It does take a while, and I'd rather wait a little bit longer and have a decent plan. Uh, but certainly Queensland, as I've, we've said many times on this, in the um, uh, AEMO's ISP uh, integrated system plan and the step change scenario, which is the thing I spend live my life in, Queensland has the biggest role. Uh, we saw an article uh, this week uh, about renewable energy zones uh, um, and how Queensland, from Maria Petkovic, who's been on this podcast way back in its early days, talking about how Queensland has a big role to play, the Darling Downs. And as we've said, the Darling Downs and New England and Central West are the, by far the three biggest renewable energy zones in Queensland. So there's a lot to be done in Queensland, and it would be far easier to do it if we had the same kind of pol policy commitment there, policy, not, not targets, that we have in New South Wales. Absolutely. And what else has struck um, caught your eye, David? I think you've got a few things that you want to sort of tick off about um, pipelines of well, wind and well, solar. Well, let's talk. A bit, let's talk about uh, uh, you know uh, sort of. First of all, I think we haven't talked on this podcast about Paul Broad leaving Snowy, um, and and you know I, I I don't know what you think, Giles, but I really think this thing about the curry curry gas plant and hydrogen is a bit of a furphy. The real story was that um, I don't in my opinion, and I have no evidence for this, is that basically it was unlikely that Paul Broad uh, was ever going to see eye to eye uh, with Chris Bowen. And, and, and Snowy has got lots of problems, uh, Snowy too. And, and, you know, therefore there was time for a change. And I guess the point I really wanted to make is, I've tried to make this in a couple of articles, it's not just the CEO, it's the darn board. The board, let's be honest here, if we're in the criticism stakes, and, and it's easy for me as sitting here with nothing much to do except talk on this podcast to be critical. Um, it's a bit like a football fan talking about Thomas Tuchel getting sacked at Chelsea. Uh, but uh, in the Happy end, to talk David about that, Knox, David. Happy to talk about that. But anyway, back to Paul Broad. <laughs> David Knox is the chair of Snowy. Uh, he was uh, the CEO at Santos when Santos was a dismal failure in terms of its share price. And for, as a reward for its dismal failure at, uh, as, as when he was the chief executive of Santos, he's been promoted to be the chair of Snowy, which has gone on to uh, Snowy replicate the same sort of thing that happened at Santos, build a great massive capital project that never earns its cost of capital. Uh, and, and in the end, is that really satisfactory? Now, there'll be endless criticism from many people who listen to this about the things that Snowy's done wrong, and I think that's fair enough. But I also want to point out that they have actually been responsible at a tough time for getting, I think, uh, uh, a very large amount of renewable energy uh, signing up for PPAs, well over a gigawatt, 
And in the end, Snowy 2 is going to have a role. It may not be a very successful role, but it's still going to be a thing. Uh, and so let's, let's hope uh, that they can continue to grow, remembering also that by customer numbers, it's the fourth largest retailer uh, in the country, uh, probably the biggest at the moment uh, owner of uh, peaking generation uh, in itself. So, it, you know, getting Snowy right it does matter quite a bit. Well, I think I agree with you there, David. In fact, when Paul Broad um, announced his resignation or when his resignation was announced, we, uh, my story was, you know, will Ch Snowy change its spots? And it was just, it, it was just obvious that um, it was, he was pretty much incompatible with the views of Chris Bowen. It's actually quite interesting to see how much further Chris Bowen goes through clearing the decks as much as he's able to. Um, you know, you could probably think about half a dozen people across the um, industry who would sort of stand as sort of bollards in the way of the clean energy transition, and it won't get personal now, but I mean, there's only, um, some of them are, are within Chris Bowen's purview, and we've seen um, some already um, sort of disappear before Paul Broad, we've now seen Paul Broad go, uh, there might be some movement perhaps at the Ch Climate Change Authority. Um, um, the chief executives there and, um, and, and, um, and, and the chairman might be seen as um, you know, perhaps not the best idea um, if we really want to go hard towards the, the, the Paris climate. So, um, so, um, so yes, I'd, yeah. I would agree with that. But uh, I mean, I'm just sort of fascinated by the fact that, I mean, it was mentioned in the uh, energy statement of elect electricity statement of opportunities that came out last week. And I mean, um, Snowy 2, I mean, I don't know how they don't tell AEMO that um, their project is delayed. The minister has said it's delayed. The contractors have said it's delayed. The contractors said they couldn't even find anyone to actually operate the tunnel boring machine. So the whole thing's 18 months behind schedule. But Snowy's still telling um, AEMO that um, it's not going to be late. Yes, well, I, whatever else you might say about Paul Broad, I think we can uh, universally agree that he was an absolutely terrible uh, communicator. Uh, 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 that may be no fault of his own. He's probably the smartest guy going. But really, the, the way Snowy has handled its public relations is a disgrace, in my opinion. Uh, it's, and, and, and so negative for themselves. But anyway, let's move on from Snowy, Giles. The next thing I wanted to quickly mention to our listeners is turbine orders. Uh, sometimes you've got to, uh, you know, we, we all see what's going on in Europe as a massive opportunity for clean energy. Uh, but at the same time, it's also a massive opportunity for the uh, coal guys to keep their plants running longer, for nuclear plants to run longer, uh, for gas plants to make a lot of money, and consumers end up having to pay for <laughs> the whole thing. So I was looking to, for some evidence to see that Europe uh, was really accelerating, but unfortunately what I found when I looked at the Vestas wind turbine orders is they're actually down very dramatically. And Vestas, the world's biggest turbine supplier, uh, is still in a second quarter running uh, cash flow negative. Uh, cash flow negative, so they're trying to push prices up, which is very bad for, for sales. And then even at General Electric, um, it's going to spin off its wind tur its um, turbine business, uh, manufacturing business, and its uh, orders were down a little bit as well. So at the moment, I can say there's no evidence of much acceleration in wind globally, uh, at least onshore wind uh, in Europe, and not enough ex evidence in Australia. Uh, my little business, ITK, uh, did a quick review of what's going on in terms of the next two or three years. So that's before the New South Wales Renewable Energy Strategies, uh, before Queensland announces any new policy. 
And uh, I think we still see about seven gigawatts of new supply coming online, which is about uh, three or gigawatts more, three and a half more than what AEMO has. And I think we see about 22 terawatt hours, so another 10 11% of uh, average uh, supply coming from those new projects. Plus, you can add in another 3 or 4% from the behind the meter solar that will get built over the next three years. And when we add it all up, I can see that we'll have uh, counting hydro uh, probably about 100 terawatt hours of renewable energy by, say, 2026, which is 50%. But that still leaves us quite a long distance to go to get up to 80%, you know, which is what the 2030 target is. And that's where I guess the New South Wales and Queensland strategies uh, will really kick in. I'm just wondering whether your figures differ um, from AEMO's because um, they seem to have a very sort of low committed target and a lot of the projects that they've described as anticipated, you actually look out the window and you can actually see them built. So um, it was a bit confusing about that. But um, anyway, perhaps other companies are as bad communicators as Snowy Hydro and, um, and um, can't keep um, AEMO updated. Um, I'm just, uh, well, it's fascinating what you said too about the wind turbine orders um, because there's some interesting things happening in Europe, of course, um, two different strategies to sort of deal with the high prices. A lot of talk in the European continent, um, less so possibly in the UK, about the need to build out renewables, but if you're right in pointing out on the turbine orders, then not much has actually yet been done. Um, we, we can't, uh, Giles, go without putting a black mark against, uh, what's his name, Rhys Moggle, someone who's been appointed apparently as the Environment Minister in the UK. I mean, that's, uh, uh, you know, he's probably no, is he worse than Angus Turnbull? Uh, uh, Angus Taylor. Angus um, Taylor. <laughs> Angus Turnbull. Um, a nice summary of the last five years of uh, coalition politics. Um, yes, I think he might be, actually, but um, although that's hard to imagine. Um, no, look, he's just, um, he's just, uh, they... They don't like wind turbines. They don't like solar farms. Um, they seem to like fracking. A bellend's, a bellend's the term they use on my uh, soccer forum. Yeah, there you go. Look, we might talk more about UK and Europe next week because we'll probably have a bit more clarity about exactly what they're up to. We're kind of right in the midst of of, um, of the new government there, which just seems to be uh, a little bit of a disaster. Although I was actually reading... Uh, a rather insightful thing on another website um, that was talking about the sort of the mixture of people they've got. So you've got the least mogs of the world of climate deniers, but there's actually a few people in there who actually are quite supportive of the net zero transition. But who gets to have the last say, I guess, is the telling point. David, um, I think we've rattled on for a little bit. I think what you should do now is probably introduce the interview that you did earlier today. I was unable to join, unfortunately, um, because of um, things hitting the roof elsewhere in uh, business. But... Um, um, you have a pretty interesting interview with someone who's got a quite a different perspective or interesting perspective about the role of governments and the role of markets and how we should design the future of an M. Yes, indeed. And in the process of doing that, we talk a little bit about uh, Australia's policy and, and LGCs. Uh, that's Farhad Abilimoria, who's the uh, 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 energy analyst at Oxford University and has previously, as we discussed in the interview, worked at AEMO uh, and also worked in the private sector. Um, but we talk about LGCs and I want to point out that the LGC price is still very high for years and years to come going forward. Uh, and that's because of voluntary surrender, which is a topic we also need to look into. And uh, as a result of that, really the in price signal for new solar and wind projects, never mind government uh, in uh, PPAs, 
is very strong to the private sector at the moment if it was available. But uh, let's listen to what Farhad had to say because it's a great discussion of uh, the need for a, a, a more government policy, particularly uh, around the area, I think, of reliability. Farhad Bilamoria, uh, Visiting Research Fellow at uh, Oxford uh, University and previously with experience at AEMO, uh, at Mercer, the, one of the bigger firms of actuaries, at Cowper's, one of the world's largest investors, and, uh, and AMP Capital in New York. Thanks very much for uh, talking to the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. And Fahad, I might just ask you, I'm sure it's not the question you were expected, but I'm always interested in the people that, uh, that are involved in the business. What, what, of all those various roles, uh, I guess, we, what do you think uh, you will end up uh, being uh, remembered for in the industry? What, 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 where do you hope to make your biggest contribution? Gosh. Um, well, I think, I mean, it's, it's just been a matter of... Um, uh, a big journey of learning for me, to be honest. I mean, I, I came from, um, even though I, I studied as an engineer, um, I, I kind of went into the sort of finance and investment sector. And um, what I kind of figured out from, from learning those, you know, learning the ropes of finance and investment is when you start to look at things like infrastructure and energy, you really need to, to know a lot about the assets and the markets that, that you're actually buying into. Um, and so that led me into energy. And, and I think, um, you know, in terms of impact, I'd, I'd love to be able to make impacts on the way we think about um, energy and, and energy systems, and, and particularly how we deal with the risks that are present today and, and uh, will come tomorrow. Um, and so making sure that we've got the right systems and the right frameworks for that is is kind of something which I'm pretty focused on and you know hope, hope to at least contribute something to that uh, that that field that's great I mean I think uh, academics are sometimes people think they live in ivory towers and theories don't matter uh, can kind of forget that basically everything that everyone does came out of a university or research institute uh, in the first place, uh, um, and and a few uh, to this day, I, t I tutored at university for for three years in a in in in, in glorified adding up, which was called accounting, and uh, to this day, I still uh, you know use the stuff I learnt at school and at university in my work, and I have the greatest respect for academics. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, if we move on, one of the things I was hoping today that we might talk a little bit about, there are a number of big debates in, in the energy industry in Australia and security uh, and reliability, so making sure the lights stay on as we decarbonise and that the prices stay reasonable is obviously at the forefront of everyone's mind. And I just thought we might, including the government and the private sector, both generators and consumers, and I thought we might just start a little at some point if I had, by talking a little bit about how you've been thinking about the role, the split of functions between uh, governments and, and the private sector. So in Australia, we have an energy only market. Uh, there's been a lot of debate about whether we need some sort of reserve mechanism, whether it's insurance or capacity or whatever. Uh, and there's been a big role for governments, uh, not so much at the federal level because they walked away from it under the previous government, but certainly at state level. And state governments often providing effectively via PPAs that purchase power agreements, the kind of financial backing that enables renewable energy to be, to be funded or increasingly to enable storage to be funded. And I'm just wondering, um, so that's a long-winded question, 
But uh, can you give me uh, what would you say about the topic? Yeah, so I think I think it's a it's a really good question and and sort of goes to the the heart of the the sector that we we we're part of, um, which is kind of dealing with essential infrastructure and essential services um, for consumers, you know, it, to basically use every day, and the importance of that cannot be underscored. Um, and so, you know, government will will always have a very strong interest. Um, um, both policy-wise and politically, in terms of what's happening in the sector, um, combined with the you know the imperative to get get things decarbonized um, in a very short space of time, um, and so I just kind of hark back you know a little bit to, to sort of the history of where we came from, and, and how we've evolved into sort of the market you know the market framework we have today. These were all originally, as we know, privatized uh, government publicly owned assets. And it was only because of a, you know, kind of an elegant framework for getting market participation and commercial involvement in the sector that we're kind of now at the place we are today. Um, now, you know, I think one of the things that um, I spend a lot of time on is thinking about, you know, where markets add value, but also what the potential you know, gaps are and, and potential market failures that can that can that can occur. Um, and and I think, you know, that's where the role of, you know, kind of we, we all know, you know, energy markets plus something, it's kind of the what's the something is kind of the big question. And and obviously governments and central agencies have a big role to to play in that. Um, but but I think when we talk about what that something is, be it, you know, as you, as you said, some sort of performance of insurance, maybe it's another market mechanism, maybe it's another contracting mechanism, or, or all three. I think one of the things that's kind of been lost or, or not spent as much time on as, as I'd like to see in the policy discourse is how those decisions are actually made. Um, you know, when you think about a capacity market to use, you know, kind of an, <laughs> a controversial example, um, or even building strategic reserves. How are those decisions actually made and how are we getting the right incentives in, in place for central agencies to make that decision? Uh, we know that you know, with the right frameworks and, and the right target, if you set something for the market to do, it will do it generally. And we've got, we've got some background at that. Um, you know, it's less clear in, in sort of the central agency space of how you get that right mix of you know reserves the right quantity the right portfolio of assets um and and how you rectify things like mistakes and and, and deal with risk so, so i think there's so, there's you know lot, yeah yeah so I, I think that's an important topic i i i, I just want to uh, step through it uh, break it up a little bit so in Australia, we have an energy-only market, uh, which means that all the electricity uh, that everyone buys and sells is in the first instance traded through the gross pool. And the price is set uh, by the last unit bid in. And of course, when there are not enough units are bid in, the price is very high. And that's what we've seen this year. There just hasn't been enough energy as much as power. Um, uh, but the, leaving this year aside, the broader trend, I think, around the world is that the more we introduce wind and solar, which has a short run marginal cost of zero or even lower if you allow for renewable energy certificates, it tends to drop average prices and therefore there's a risk that we don't 
that investors don't see the price signal to, for new investment. Um, so I guess my question is, does an energy-only market, can, can it actually work in, as the percentage of wind and solar goes up and nearly all of the energy and power that's built in, bid in, is, is, it, is it zero? Um, yeah, I think, I think you've hit on like one of the big biblical debates almost in, in the space. Um, I, I think, I think um, as you look at the, both the theory and the practice, um, I think one thing that comes out clearly, um, you know, in, in, in you know, good, good research and, and good, you know, good, good practice as well, is that you need good price signals. Um, and that's one thing an energy-only market, you know, well-designed and well-structured is, is actually pretty good at, is, is giving those price signals at particular points and, and spaces, you know, points in time and spaces um, over locations. Um, now, one of the challenges with, with you know, translating, the, I think where the, where the energy-only market probably has weaknesses or, or what you'd call, you know, technically incompleteness, is translating those, as you said, into long-term contracts and long-term investment decisions. So if you if you're getting, you know, very low prices for a number of years, um, you know, does it actually create the signals to invest long-term? And and um, you know, electricity prices, um, you know, to kind of go into not to go into too much detail, but but to to use a term that's tended to to be used a lot in the literature um, or even in practice, electricity markets are known as fat-tailed markets. Now, what that means is that generally you have most of you have a lot of the action happening at you know within a small band of outcomes, and then every once in a while something happens, and it happens in a really really big way, um, and we can see that currently. Um, and so that's one of the challenges, I think, of getting, you know, of, of having the, the insurance policy or one of the needs for an insurance policy in the market is, you know, we may think as a market framework, we, we you know, we, we can have a good view of, of risks over a, over a short or medium term horizon, but things happen, um, you know. Um, yeah, we don't. And, and no, I happen, mean, if you go back and look not. at the electricity prices, no one predicted this year's prices, or at least no respectable forecaster that I'm aware of actually predicted what would happen this year. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, people do not know the future. Uh, they, they, they can analyse till the cows come home, but price is by its nature unpredictable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there are actually, you know, there are gaps in what we probably think of as small gaps, but there are gaps in the energy only framework, um, you know, that that actually don't fully align the incentives. We may think, you know, when prices are really high, you know, retailers are incentivized to hedge, but there are, you know, there are gaps in the framework that mean that there are sort of misalignments in that in that sort of incentive and in that um, um, sort of impetus to 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 to, to hedge. So, you know, that that's where it. I think that's where, you know, these are really sort of, again, small details, they're small, and we may think of them as low likelihood outcomes, but that's when, you know, that's when the, the challenges happen. Um, and that's when the, you know, the gaps can emerge. And so that's where, you know, we kind of need to have a good insurance policy for the system. Um, and and, what, and the, what, is it, is, what, what is an insurance policy? Let, let, let's cut to the chase because, you know, 
Uh, Australia's trying to decarbonise pretty rapidly. If we look at the ISP, it's calling for 80% uh, uh, re renewable energy or uh, only 20% thermal generation, I think is a better way of describing it, by about 2030. Now that's very, very ambitious. And, and my numbers only have us at not only 50% by, by 2026 or 2027. So if any pace is going to pick up from here, and, and it, you know, if, 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 if is, what do we need to do specifically? What would you do if you were, uh, if you were uh, 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 Mr. Westerman and running AEMO, what would you do? And you, you had total control, what would you do? So I think, like, there, I think there's two ways of thinking about it um, in terms of developing that insurance. One is sort of looking at it from a financial perspective and saying, hey, you know, can we add some more capital or, or can we you know, provide contracting frameworks that allow more assets to get built, right? And, and, and so that's one way of thinking about it from a financial perspective and, and kind of similar to what, you know, what's going on in some of the, the res frameworks. Um, and then the other side of it is, okay, well, we need an, you know, we need something else that operates when there's a market failure or when, you know, something on top of the market. And so I guess my, you know, my initial um, inclination from this, and it depends on how it's designed, is, but it's sort of the latter that's kind of the really the, the, the role of insurance is to kind of, you know, when, when, when market frameworks reach their limit, that's when you need some something else in that system. And what's that something else? Well, I think one of the issues is you've got to create good frameworks for those agencies to develop that something else or to buy that something else. And so one of the things that I've been working on is a lot is, is applying the way, you know, applying um, insurance frameworks and ideas to the way we procure that strategic reserve. And so what does that mean in practice? Because I think we all understand the concept of insurance. We all pay more uh, every year than we would if we didn't have insurance to protect ourselves against a big loss on, on the basis that uh, a small cost every year is worth paying to avoid the risk of a large loss. You know, if yeah. the NEM, NEM has a blackout, uh, that's a bigger problem than if everyone pays a little bit more for electricity and there's some concept of value in there. So, so what would insurance uh, in, in, in the NEM actually look like in practice? Yeah, so I, I think one of the challenges with that is, you know, everyone pays a little bit, but sometimes you don't know what, what you're getting. Um, and so what I would, I, I, I guess, again, the, the stuff that I've been looking at is to actually create a, a framework and an incentive structure for that agency. So that agency um, in sort of this, you know, the, the, the ideal world would actually be regulated and would be able to make decisions like an insurance agency. So it rece would receive, you know, premiums representing the risk inherent in these sort of extreme events. And then it would make um, investment decisions that mitigate those risks. And there you've actually got an alignment between, you know, good deci investment decisions and actual risks. Um, because that's, I think, one of the biggest issues when you have crises is you get political involvement and, you know, it's like, well, let's, let's go and do something. And something is often not necessarily what's actually required. So this is one way of thinking about it that would actually align um, outcomes or, or allow risks with outcomes. But if I had the, the analyst in me immediately says, or the, the, the free markets person, uh, which, and I love markets, I, I, unlike a lot of people, I think markets are the answer to a lot of problems, but I'll be the first to admit they don't always produce fair outcomes and there are failures. 
but don't we need two of these insurance providers competing with each other so <laughs> that we've got some competition in this provision of insurance services? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where, you know, ultimately, if you kind of look at, this was actually really interestingly one of the earliest models of um, electricity markets. So actually by a, a Nobel Prize winner, Robert Wilson, um, when they, you know, the economists first started thinking about electricity as a market, it, they actually thought of it as an insurance market. And so these, this idea of all these insurers competing in the system to actually um, insure load and insure consumers from these sort of extreme events. Now, what we've evolved into today is obviously an element of insurance with, you know, obviously retailers facing risk, price risk when there's scarcity and, and the like. So there's some really good alignment there. Um, but yeah, obviously you would have some, some you know, some, some competition. Again, it's, it's, a, it's sort of an, a question of evolution or revolution. If we go tomorrow to a fully competitive model and, and you know, one of the things that, that is quite interesting is the higher price caps we get, and, and you know, we're, I think um, there was recently uh, a bit of work coming out of the, the AMC, you know, on, on basically review of reliability settings, you know, basically um, talking about an increase in the current price cap um, quite significantly. Um, and then there's work that, that's been done a few years ago suggesting, you know, potentially price cap requirements well in excess of that. And so that could also create a need for, again, potentially not necessarily reliability insurance, but price insurance. So a way of actually capping your retail prices. And again, that would be a way of creating good alignment or better alignment between uh, participants and consumers. Yeah, so and I guess, uh, you know, in the, in, in the actuality in Australia, what we have is this natural tendency for Gentailers to big gentailers to emerge because they can effectively uh, self-insure their load by owning little bits of or even big bits of generation uh, and spreading their load out over a lot of different places and and so you know the market tends to become less competitive as these big gentailers uh, get on now I, 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 this, um, but so I'm not I'm still I've got to say in the end I'm still not exactly sure how your insurance concept would would work in practice if it was to be introduced. If you had to uh, make a recommendation to Chris Bowen tomorrow and sum it up in, in, uh, in, in one paragraph because he's only got that much time, uh, he's got 30 seconds to understand what your idea is down to making a decision to say yes or no, what, what would it be? I think, I think uh, it would be basically to create a framework for a strategic reserve, but to have very strong performance. So I think initially um, you've got to actually work through this um, from a central agency perspective. So, um, you know, forget competition for a while, um, but I think you've got to actually create an insurance, um, you know, potentially a, a framework which, which allows, you know, the, the setting of some rates. Um, and that, again, that's, that could be based on an insurance type premium and then a decision framework that aligns with that for whoever procures that central, that uh, strategic reserve. So we're going to need a strategic reserve that has to be paid for by all the participants. Yeah. 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 I, I think or, 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 alternative, or alternatively, the use of demand, and this is kind of where I think demand response or, or even just demand um, willingness to pay comes in because you could utilize, if, if there was demand that said, you know, I don't want to pay that insurance, 
that's actually fine because that's actually a resource on the system. That does become a, a source of reserve. Self-insurance, um, effectively. Self-insurance, exactly. That's right. But, uh, uh, but the, that's right. Uh, but you can't have that if it becomes a big chentail and then the whole system becomes at risk, if you see Absolutely. what I mean. So uh, there has to be some overriding view that whatever every participant does doesn't put everyone else at risk. I'm sure uh, that, that's, uh, that's what underlines the guarantee that the NEG that we originally uh, were going to implement. Let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, I guess other markets are going to increasingly face these sorts of issues. Uh, but I, I also just wondered myself, uh, probably taking you out of your comfort zone here, but uh, you know, the Australian market is more or less based on the UK, the Australian system is based on the UK system originally where we, we split the state-owned uh, monopolies up, as you say, back in the mid-1990s. In, into uh, market, markets for generation and retail and then uh, monopolies for wires and poles and transmission. Uh, and then over time, the split up generators and the split up retailers have all merged together and the networks have stayed on as monopolies. But I wonder myself uh, if you've had ever thought whether that, is, that UK model is really appropriate in a world where we're moving to inverter-based control and it's possible to have little grids based at the street level, more or less like the internet, uh, where the separation of infrastructure and, and um, assets and, and the sort of demand and supply of the service it, it doesn't necessarily have to be run on functional lines, but can be run on geographies if it wants to. Yeah, I, th I think, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. And, and I think, um, you know, the switch to uh, local control um, is is definitely a big sh um, is, is sort of a transformation from um, you know from from where we've we've been um, and I think you know this 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 idea has the potential I think to to you know as you said kind of regionalize or localize um, you know parts of the grid. Um, you know, I, I, I still think there's there's kind of a role um, and an important role for um, someone to can think about the system as a whole. Um, I think the 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 network effects in in electricity are pretty significant, and and I think that's one of the the um, distinguishing factors of electricity versus many other commodities. Um, not yeah, I there agree are with network that. Network effects in anything in, in others, but but it's it's a very strong network effect. Um, it, it it is indeed, but it's not. If you take a um, a batteries, your case in point, uh, we all agree that it provides a a, um, uh, a stack of a value stack. You know, and it provides some services to networks and some services to retail, for instance. And I guess your community battery is your archetypal ex example. Mm. Um, um, uh, but but. Uh, uh, you know, who is responsible for valuing? I mean, it's like an exter a positive externality a network effect, isn't it? I mean, uh, um, can you explain to me very briefly how the literature actually deals? We all know how we deal with negative externalities. We put a tax on them, but how do you deal with positive externalities? Which, are, which yeah, I think, is that yeah. what a network effect actually is? Yeah, yeah, look, I, th I think that's right. And I think the, the so, one of the, you know, I think one of the existing problems, and you know, I certainly don't profess to have these the solutions to this one because it is it is a core problem 
um, you know, kind of dealing with, as you said, a network um, that is increasingly able to, you know, self-regulate um, at the local level, um, but you've still got sort of an intermeshing of systems. And, um, you know, traditionally, as you said, we've thought about this as a, you know, kind of a monopoly type of, um, you know, type of framework where you've got, you know, networks and sort of intermeshing. And so, you know, what one person does affects another. And so, you, you know, you kind of, you, you can't um, create a fully private framework for that because, you know, you have this, these issues with congestion and the like. And so this is kind of where it, it, it moves away from, um, you know, it, it, electricity is sort of this strange little beast in, in economics um, because there's elements of it that, that behave very much like, like a private good. Um, and, and, you know, our market frameworks do a pretty good job of, of sort of commoditizing electricity. Um, and then there's, you know, aspects of it that are public, um, like the network effects. And so that's, I think, it, it, you know, technically it puts into this strange category called a, um, a common pool resource, which, which I'm sure um, many of your listeners have, have kind of heard about before. But it's sort of this, this commodity or this good that's, that's neither public nor private, and it sort of sits in the middle. And so that's where you kind of need... Um, you know, you obviously can have a good, strong private framework for it, but you do need some, you know, some, some sort of public um, overlays that actually, you know, allow that, that whatever the network effects are to, um, to be managed uh, and particularly the risks to be managed. Now, you know, I think that's one of the current gaps is kind of how you translate that into the incentives of the network, right? So how you... Um, you know, if there's, if there's risks uh, emerging from a network perspective, how do you incentivize the operator or be it a group of operators or the local region, however you want to create that governance, how do you get them to make the right decision and how do they have the carrot and the stick? Um, and we, we try to do that through things like um, performance incentive schemes and the like. Um, but that's, I think, one of the existing, you know, the existing challenges. Um, you know, one, there, there, are, there are streams of work that suggest that there may be scope to, I think, develop incentives for, for networks um, or to create, you know, to move, move away from this idea of sort of a, a, an asset-based regulation to something that is more like a platform. Um, but again, that, that's, I think that's still... That hasn't really taken shape. I don't think there's an accepted model for that. Um, and even when you look at the literature on, you know, DSOs, distribution system operators, there are a variety of models that that can, you know, that, that have been proposed. Um, and I don't think we've sort of reached, you know, the single model or this, you know, the the. the suite I, I agree, and I think if on this podcast, one of the things we never do is talk about the networks enough. I, uh, the networks by asset value are easily the largest component uh, of the electricity system these days, single largest uh, class of assets. And, and we just don't think hard enough about that 50% uh, or 40% of the electricity bill that, that wires and poles in total represent. Uh, look, uh, there's a, a number of other topics that, uh, uh, that we could talk about, Farhad, but I know you've uh, looked at various different markets, uh, California and... Uh, and Texas probably, and the UK and Europe. And I'm just 
going to ask you some uh, kind of to score some of these things uh, out of 10, just off the top of your sure. head. If you, if you had to rate Australia's current market design uh, out of, uh, relative to the market designs in other markets that you've looked at, what would be your score out of 10? Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a tough one because I think whatever I, I say, there'll, be, there'll definitely be folks Arguing yeah, the yeah, there'll be folks um, will be unhappy with what you say, but, but you know, guess <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, you can you yeah, can you can live yeah. with that, Farhad. I, I certainly have. Absolutely. Um, no, I, look, I think I think I would actually class the Australian system from what I've seen as as sort of an eight or thereabouts. Um, I think it's a it's a a pretty good model um, um, of you know, especially of of how scarcity prices should work. Um, a lot of other regions look to the NEM as as a model um, for, for kind of how how you know how, how to how to design a market that's actually well structured and has good good strong price formation. Um, I think where we um, or probably what what the big questions are and and sort of you know gaps are in 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 our current framework is how you you know basically how you allow the transition to happen at the scale it needs to happen. I think we need, you know, looking at AMOS, um, you know, step change ISP scenario, I think we need, you know, four to five gigawatts of, um, of renewables, you know, every year for the next, you know, next 10, 10 20 years. Yeah, it's um, quite it's quite clear that's not going to happen without government incentives, isn't it? I mean, you, you, I mean, it's just too hard to rely on a coal plant closing down at some unknown and uncertain date. Um, you, you have to have some guarantee that your revenue is going to be there, and we need some policy to manage the coal out of the system, don't you think? It's a quite, absolutely. You know, the, the certainty that that would be provided—that is a government role, really, isn't it? Don't you think? Yep. I mean, is Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think. I mean, I think you've got, in terms of creating the incentives for renewable investment. You know, I think. I think you've got a pretty good model in in the LRET, and I think we've we've shown uh, the, the evidence has shown that over the last few years that you know it can actually get investment done. As you as you said, I think where the challenge lies is in the sort of the the coordinate, coordination and mitigation of you know I think. What, what Tim Nelson and, and others call disorderly, you know, disorderly retirement or disorderly investment, um, where you have this sort of, you know, out in type type men, um, framework. Typical market right? overshooting, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so that's that's I think where I think you need you need governments to take a bit of a firmer hand during this period, um, and it, and it and it might even just be as simple as creating the you know creating a, a plan. Um, and, and sort of a an oversight framework that that participants can you know that participants can can work to, and creating the transparency um, for that. Um, I, yeah, I think this I, is kind I, of where I, I've always liked the blueprint model where essentially firms could build it, bid in their value uh, going forward. But even that's got uh, uh, problems because when, you know when you look at the Queensland, I mean, most the biggest owner of coal generation in Australia now as you mean AGL moves out, is, is going to be Queensland. And what they do is really crucial to the future. And that's going to be a matter of government policy and nothing to do with markets at the, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I mean, we can sit here and write about it till the cows come home and, and it'll still be what the Queensland government decides. 
that, that ends up shooting it. Let, last question for you, Fahad, uh, in this, because uh, in this, and it's again, it take you right out of your comfort zone. It's about the um, behind the meter sector. Do, do you think it's uh, the current way behind the meter interfaces with um, I I the in front of the meter sector is, you know, where you have insensitive so price insensitive solar generated way in on rooftops is, is going to work as that sector continues to grow? Um, I, I look, I think the, the current, you know, the current sort of flat tariff arrangements combined with, um, you know, the sort of the set feed in tariff, although you're starting to see that, you know, start to shift and develop a bit of a shape. Um, I think that that evolution, you know, is, is quite, um, nascent still at this point, and, and it really needs to, to kind of shift and move, um, and, and move quite quickly, um, I think the one of the challenges that, that I think needs to be figured out is, um, you know, you've obviously got a, a bevy of relationships now that, that could emerge with your end customer. Um, it's the, you know, there's retailers, there's, there's, there's aggregators, um, you know, potentially selling, you know, your, your um, energy to, to one participant and, and maybe it's, you know, FCAS or something else to, to, to others. Um, you know, there, there is a lot of complexity in that. And, and I think part of the challenge is just creating an effective retail structure that can enable, you know, everyday consumers to, and, and mass market consumers to participate. Because I think obviously, you know, there's gonna be sophisticated folks and, in, you know, businesses and industries out there that, that are getting this done and, and can, you know, interact and manage with, manage multiple participants, but, then there's going to be a, a big, big chunk of the rest of us that, you know, kind of maybe look at our energy bill when it's only when it's high and um, and and you know you need that automation and that kind of you know single interface that allows you know that can, your assets to be doing their thing and you seeing the benefit maybe in your bills or or otherwise, but you know you you're not having to you know make those individual. Um, decisions too often and, and it's not too complex for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my bill's $18.50 last month. I just got a, 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 a note from my retailer today. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with my seven people in an electric <laughs> car. Uh, yeah. that I'm paying $18 or $20 a month and never got over $22 even with the price rises. So uh, from the individual customer's perspective, I'm fine with that. I, um, I, just finishing off on this, I, I guess there's a lot of complaints, as we've said, about the low prices at midday that's caused by all this rooftop solar. But it seems to me that classically in markets, if everyone sees that prices will stay at zero or, or lower at midday, uh, then people will invest in that to trade the spread. People will yep. invest in batteries and shift, the, shift that zero price, try to trade that out into later in the day or at some other time in the year, won't they? I mean, the market will uh, take advantage of that low price. Investors, entrepreneurs will take advantage of those low prices. And just the fact that we haven't seen it uh, um, in one year doesn't mean that it won't happen as the coal generation goes away. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there'll, there'll be there. There already is a lot of evidence for strong behavioural effects, um, and so you kind of need that. I think that that um, policy courage, if you will, um, to start to shift that and and to actually see the effects on that. I think you know, California is one state where um, the you know the 
the shifts have been pretty significant and and the, the evidence has been pretty good to date um and so that's that's kind of i think where you kind of need to go and you need a bit of a strong step and a strong um you know strong leadership to 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 enable that to happen Thanks very much, Farhad uh, Bilimoria, for talking to us. As I said at the outset, I think uh, theory uh, in the end uh, uh, underlies all good design um, and hopefully followed by good theory and good practice makes, makes for a, a very happy uh, customer and retailer. Thanks again, Farhad. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Ed. And that was Farhad Bilimoria, um, uh, Energy Scholar at Oxford University. Uh, um, with some views on policy approaches in Australia. And Giles, I don't know what you think, but he, in the end, he ended up giving us an eight out of a 10 uh, in the NEM for policy. And I guess I pretty much feel the same way. I mean, we're, we're world leaders in things like integrating behind the meter uh, in, into the system. And I think, you know, when, when Australian energy people go to Europe uh, and talk about it, our voice is, uh, is, is strong. It's actually quite interesting what you said about that. I've just been following some of the LinkedIn posts from some of our um, energy experts and um, people from the Australian Energy Council and the Clean Energy Council and a whole bunch of the hydrogen folk. They've been over in Germany explaining, listening to what they're doing with their energy grid and hearing what um, uh, Australia um, operates its own grid and they sort of listening to what the Australians were saying. They said, you do what? <laughs> really? You're kidding me. Um, but it's uh, really quite extraordinary, just the different approaches. Um, and we're going to be publishing a couple of their reports over the next couple of days. David, um, you know, look, I was fascinated to hear what um, Farhad said about the strategic reserve, particularly, um, I think that's a very common view out there in the energy market. No one's a real big fan of the capacity markets, but I guess we're going to have to wait and see um, what the ministers, I'm told, um, and their departments are going to be coming up with, because I think that pretty much it's um, fair to say that the ESB itself has been more or less sidelined and it's just really just like an input into sort of discussions and considerations rather than leading the charge on that one. Anyway, David, look, it's been a long enough podcast as it is. Um, thank you very much for doing the interview with Farhad. Um, um, thank you to all the listeners out there. Thank you very much um, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evigen, for your ongoing and long-lasting support. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. Please go well, and we'll be back again soon. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evigen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.